me share my screen. Um, okay, so hopefully you guys can see that. Uh, so the title of my sermon today is The Return of the King. When I was in the seventh grade, I had an uncle who would, uh, he lived in Chicago and um, he would visit. And when he would visit uh, from Chicago, he would take me and my two brothers to uh, go watch a movie at the movie theaters. And I remember I was in the seventh grade and uh, one of the first movies he took my brothers and I to watch was The Lord of the Rings. I know it's kind of an older movie. I don't know if you guys have seen some of this or I'm sure you guys know what it is at least. Um, I, was remember, I remember it was a rainy day he picked us up from the house. For some reason, I remember I had red Converse. I don't know why I remember that detail. <laughs> um, and this was in December 2002. So I was in fifth grade, I think, uh, when the second Lord of the Rings came out. And when I went in, it was the second movie. So it's not like an origin story. And I felt completely lost. <laughs> All the hobbits looked same. The orcs, they were a little scary. But I just knew the battle scenes were really, really amazing. Um, and there's one scene that people still talk about today because it's so powerful. Um, and I want to talk about that today as, as an intro. And so what you basically need to know is there, these are the, one of the, some of the main characters. The guy on the left is Frodo. The guy on the right is Sam. And there is a ring of power that everyone is fighting for. The bad guys, they want to use it for power and evil and to destroy others. The good guys, uh, like men in this movie, they want to see if they can control it, but over time they see that they fall into temptation for power. And so these Frodo and Sam, they are hobbits and they're tasked to destroy this ring of power. Um, they're small, they're nimble, and they can travel unnoticed throughout the country. So um, they're assigned to destroy the ring. And so in the second movie, in the middle of like the main battle, when all hope gets lost, Frodo, the main character on the left, he loses hope. And he says um, certain words that spark a speech from Sam on the right. And this is a, a scene that is still talked about today. Um, in the next slide, you have a snippet of that scene. Uh, Frodo says, what are we holding on to, Sam? And uh, Sam says, there's some good in this world, Frodo. And I want to read, actually, Sam actually says more than this. I want to read what he actually says. So it, it, you don't see it on here. But Frodo says, I can't do this, Sam. And Sam says, I know, it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were, and sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? But how could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those are the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you're too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't, because they were holding on to something. And then Frodo says, what are we holding on to, Sam? Sam says that there is some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. If you're in that movie and you're watching it, this scene is so powerful because the music in the background and it coincides with the battle in the movie and all the different characters, it just lines up perfectly. And Sam's speech, it's still talked about today for movie critics. 
And I feel part of it relates to what we're going through. It's 2020 and maybe we feel a bit like Frodo that I can't do this. What are we holding on to? With COVID, the pandemic, the shutdown with elections coming up, racial tensions, problems around the world, the fires, will things ever go back to normal? It was so bad, can things ever go back to the way they were? And what are we holding on to? How do we endure this broken world with sin and death? For Frodo and Samwise, they just have to wait till the next movie, the third movie, and it's actually titled The Return of the King. That's where I got the title of this sermon. Um, so they just have to wait to see how things turn out. But for us as Christians, there are answers to this question of what are we holding on to? And so we are awaiting a king, but for us, we await the one true king. And that's what we're going to talk about today in the book of James, the return of the king and how that gives us hope. If you're here last week, it was slightly depressing because we talked about hell. The title was The Cries of the Damned and how the wicked people, people like us, deserve hell. But if we repent before God, there is hope for us. And so the preview for today's sermon is how should Christians endure suffering? How should Christians endure suffering? And I have a basic outline. We'll have a command, a biblical example, and then a second command and a second biblical example. And so this is what uh, we're going to go through today. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to James chapter 5. And we're going to see how should Christians endure in suffering. So turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Well, as you're getting there, um, the actually author of Lord of the Rings is a Christian. So there's a lot of Christian themes in that movie. I highly recommend you watch or read uh, the book. Uh, just a shout out there to J.R.R. Tolkien. Okay, so James chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 7. All right, this is what it says. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. All right, so there's two commands we're going to look at with two biblical examples attached to each. The first command for Christians who suffer is this, to be patient until Christ returns to rescue the faithful and judge the unrepentant. We see this in verse 7 when he says, be, there, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Now, that word therefore, it's super important. Like all your English teachers say, when you see a therefore, you ought to ask what the therefore is therefore. It's annoying when they say that, but it works. What is the therefore therefore? The word therefore, it functions to summarize what was previously said in order to make a point. 
So if I say I'm really tired, I didn't get any sleep, therefore I will take a nap. I'm summing up what just happened and I'm making a point based on what was just said. So therefore recalls last week's passage about uh, the cries of the damned, that the people who are wicked, they'll one day meet their maker, Jesus the judge, and they will suffer for all eternity. This is scary for the wicked and those who reject Christ. And so James says, therefore, knowing that the wicked will one day perish, therefore, because of this, be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. The bad guys are not going to get away. The bad guys will not be let off the hook. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Now, to be patient, it's not passive. You're not just waiting around. It's not a state of being where you're just like sitting on your couch. In the Greek, the tense of uh, that phrase, be patient, it's actually a command. It's in the active form and it's an imperative, meaning James is commanding his audience to do something. So to be patient, it's not passive. It's an active action. It's to endure, to weather the storm, to hold on when all hope is lost, to persevere through difficulty, uh, both with people and with circumstances. Why? It's because the Lord will return. Christians, brothers and sisters, you can be patient because of the Lord's return. And that Greek word for uh, the coming of the Lord, it specifically refers to the arrival of a king. And so an author like James or Paul, they use this to describe the arrival of the one true King Jesus, <clears throat> that he would return to judge the wicked and deliver the faithful. We just have to be patient, okay? This life is short. The past two weeks, I've talked about the example of a dot and an arrow. This life is like a mist. It's like a vapor. We're here today, gone tomorrow. Soon the Lord will return. And so James, to demonstrate or illustrate the example of patience, he gives the example of a farmer. Um, and he says this in verses 7 to 8. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, I don't think anyone here is a farmer. Maybe we've been to Farmer Boys. I love their cop salads. Um, maybe you have a garden in your backyard or an orange tree. But in the ancient world and in the modern world, a farmer had a lot of responsibilities. They had to prepare the field, sow the seeds, they had harvest. There's a lot of waiting. There's a lot of patience. And so they're especially dependent on rain. And here's a small diagram to demonstrate that. Here's a line, just a timeline. Um, so they were dependent on the early rains and the late rains. The early rain came around October. So they would plant their seeds around October, which, hey, it's October right now. So they would plant their seeds around this time and they were, would wait and pray for rain. And then they would wait for the late rains, which would occur in March or April. This is called the late rain. This is when um, the crops would grow and they would be time to harvest. So as a farmer, you're dependent on the early rain and the late rain. And so rain was a sign that you were blessed by God. In Deuteronomy 11, it says, and if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, God speaking, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul, 
he will give he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. So remember, the audience of James, they were probably some of them farmers. They were poor. And so they would have understood this imagery. And I think you get the concept. And so this farmer, they're waiting and dependent on the two rains. What do they do in the meantime? It's a lot of patience from November to February. All they could do is wait and pray. So that's why James says, be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Notice that in verse 8, James adds at hand. The coming of the Lord is at hand. This means it could happen anytime. We have to live our lives knowing that Jesus could return anytime. And we ask you, do we actually live like that? Do you live as if Jesus could return anytime? What if he returned when I finished my sentence? What if he returned when I finished the sermon? What if he returned in the middle of the night while we're sleeping? What if, we, what if he returned next week, next month, five years, 50 years, 100 years? We simply don't know. We simply have to be patient until the coming of the Lord. And that's what James says to us. Um, I want to share another classic children's book. Um, when I was in the third grade, my third grade teacher after lunch would read the classic book by C.S. Lewis called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I hope you guys have heard of this book before. It is a classic. And I've actually watched the 1988 version, which is three hours long. And I've watched the 2005 version, which is like two hours long. And so basically there's four siblings uh, here, Peter, uh, Susan, Lucy, and Edmund. And they live in England and somehow they enter this normal wardrobe, but they emerge into the land of Narnia. And it's this magical world, which currently is ruled over by the evil white uh, witch, which you kind of see in the cover photo. And she's cast a spell on this land. So there's an everlasting winter. Everything has frozen over. The inhabitants, they are suffering. And so these four siblings, when they enter this land of Narnia, they see the lampposts, all that. Um, and they, they get lost in the woods. And so they're rescued by these two beavers. Don't watch the 1988 version. These beavers look horrendous. I'm um, just warning you right now. Um, but anyways, these beavers take the four siblings back to the house. And the beaver explains something really important. And so here's a scene from the movie. Um, this beaver looks much more cute. <laughs> and so beaver leans in and he says to these four siblings, they say Aslan is on the move perhaps already landed. And if you read this book, you know that Aslan represents the lion and that lion represents uh, Jesus. And so in the book, it says this, and now a very curious thing happened. None of these children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment Beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund, who's top left right here, felt a sensation of mysterious horror. It's because he's a traitor, in case you didn't know. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. 
All of this because Aslan is on the move. And this gives hope to people like Peter, Edmund, and Lucy. But for Edmund, or not Edmund, for Edmund, it was terrifying for him because he was actually working with the white uh, witch. They've been working together at this point. And so he feels a sense of terror. He doesn't know what's going to happen. And the beauty of books like this, especially written by Christian authors, they really try to parallel realities in life. That when Aslan is on the move, that gives hope to these four, at least to these three children. And if you want to know what happens to Edmund, just uh, read the book. But this one phrase, Aslan is on the move, it instills hope. They know that the white witch, her reign will soon come to an end. It will not be an everlasting winter. And for us, it's not Aslan, but it's Jesus. Jesus is on the move. Jesus is not just lounging on his throne, waiting uh, and forgetting about us. Jesus is on his way back. He is on the move. And we are to be patient, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. We might not be in an everlasting winter like Narnia, but don't we live somewhere worse in a world of sin and brokenness, with pandemic and death? and racism. We may not have a wicked white witch, but we have a real enemy, Satan. We have demons. We have other sinners who stop at nothing to bring us down. Our only hope is that Jesus is on the move, that Jesus is returning. And when he comes back, the everlasting winter, this world of sin, he'll put an end to that. He'll put an end to death. What's stirring in your heart when you hear that Jesus is returning? We know how Peter, Edmund, Susan, and Lucy respond. How about you? Is there comfort knowing that Jesus is returning? Or are you afraid, like Edmund, knowing that you are not walking right with God? That's the question I want to ask you guys today. So the application for this first point of being patient for the Lord's return I want to ask you this. When you struggle in life, what gives you hope? A way to answer that question, you can uh, complete the sentence in your own mind, um, to be patient until blank. Maybe as a student, you are, I just need to be patient until the weekend because on the weekend, there's no homework. If some of you guys, I just have to be patient until winter break because you know what? Teachers will probably uh, also not give us homework and we can go on vacation. Well, I don't know about now, but we can just take a break. Maybe you want to be patient until high school is over. No more pressure from parents to live under the household. No more high school drama. No more cyberbullying that you experience. Maybe you just want to be patient until you're healed of a certain sickness or a physical ailment. Maybe you want to be patient until they find a vaccine for COVID so everything can go back to normal. Maybe you want to be patient until you get accepted to college then you know your hard work in high school paid off. Maybe you want to be patient until you graduate from college and then have a job and make a lot of money. I want to tell you, these things, they give a certain sense of security, but it can't give an ultimate sense of security. None of these things can really alleviate you from the suffering that we experience in this fallen world. We must be patient ultimately for the coming of the Lord. For the Lord's return, this will make all things new. And let me say something. I think for this uh, digital generation, Gen Z, however you want to call it, 
patience is going to be really, really, really difficult. Patience is going to be countercultural. Think about it. I mean, <laughs> we are not a patient culture. We're the exact opposite. We're all about instantaneous. We want 5G Wi-Fi. We want top speed. We're a fast-paced culture. We want to download our apps in seconds. We want to microwave our food in seconds, Venmo our friends in seconds, text our friends in seconds. We want our movies on demand, ready to stream in seconds. We are not a generation that knows how to be patient. We are anxious when things don't go our way. But James commands us to be patient. Strengthen your heart, stabilize your heart, knowing that the Lord will return. This is the first command, to be patient because the Lord is returning. How about the second command? What is the second command for suffering and struggling Christians? Let's look at verse 9 in James chapter 5. The second command is, verse 9, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So the second command is to do not grumble against one another because Christ returns to judge and assess the life of believers. And unpack that in James uh, chapter 5, verse 9. James' command is to not grumble against one another. That sounds a little strange. It seems like a really random command in this passage. But actually, when you think about it, doesn't that make sense? When there's suffering, when your life is not going well, aren't you more likely to lash out at people around you? When you're suffering, aren't you more likely to um, just maybe curse or say something that you regret? And actually, that's what James has been addressing at certain parts of his letter. James 1.26 says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not uh, bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. James chapter 3, 5-6. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Some people say that the easiest way to sin is through speech, through your words, because it's so difficult to control our tongue. When you're hurting, have you ever said something hurtful to someone that you immediately regret? Have you ever cussed somebody out because you're angry at your life and you felt bad afterwards? One of the easiest ways to sin is through, the, uh, is through speech. And so James's audience, remember, they were poor Jewish Christians. Remember last week, they were being oppressed by wealthy landowners and the surrounding culture. It could be easy for some of them to lash out against one another when they're experiencing poverty and persecution. But James says, no, 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 no. When you suffer, do not grumble. Do not lash out against one another. The reason is this. Look at the end of verse 9 on the slide. Because behold, the judge is standing at the door. The reason we should not grumble at one another is because Jesus will also judge Christians. You might be thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. I thought Jesus was only coming back to judge non-Christians. Well, no, uh, Jesus is judging everybody. Jesus will judge Christians on judgment day, but not in the matter of salvation. That's already secure in Christ, but on the matter of how you live your life as a Christian. Let me show you where I get this. I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 
on this slide. And basically the main point I want to make is that each Christian's life will be tested and rewarded accordingly. I think because we emphasize so much on the grace of the gospel, which is entirely true. Don't miss that. But we also have to realize that our life matters. We can't just be on a couch the whole, our whole life. How we live our life matters. 1 Corinthians 3 says this, each one's work will become manifest for the day, which is the day of judgment, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If, anyone, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. I really want you to pay attention to this because this is addressed to Christians. Verse 15 says, your work, it might be burned up. It might not amount to anything, though you'll still be saved. He will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. So let me make this absolutely clear. If you are a Christian and you trust in the gospel of Jesus, 100% guarantee you will be with Jesus forever in heaven. All right, that should already make us jump for joy. But clear in many parts in the Bible, your life will also be assessed and evaluated by Jesus. Think of the parable of the 10 talents. When the master comes back, you have to give an account of how you lived your life. How you use your gifts? Were you jealous? Were you zealous for good works? Did you live your life for God's kingdom? And so every Christian who places their faith in Christ, 100%, they will be in heaven. But every Christian will receive varying degrees of rewards based on how they steward, stewarded or managed the gifts God has given them. So James implies, in a way, if you have conflict with someone in life, if you're beefing with somebody or you're just not talking to anybody, in a sense, this will count against you. Not in a matter of salvation, as I said, but your reward, that will be affected. That will affect the evaluation on Judgment Day. Jesus will assess you and he sees your every act, action, and deed, and this will be something that could count against you. So do not grumble against one another because Jesus, the judge, he will also judge Christians. He will judge me. He will judge you. And so the biblical example that James gives for this is the example of a prophet. Okay. So he gives the example of the faithful prophets. Uh, last point, he gives the example of a farmer. This point, he gives the example of a prophet. And he says in verses 10 to 11, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So after James commands them not to grumble and not to bicker because God is going to judge Christians as well, he presents the example of prophets, people like Jeremiah, Isaiah. Specifically here, he points to the patience of Job. And if you're not a Christian, basically Job was a really solid dude. God called him blameless and upright, that he feared God and shunned evil in Job uh, chapter one. He was also really wealthy. He had a wife, he had 10 kids, it's a lot. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 3, camels, 5,000 oxen, 
500 donkeys and many servants. So this guy is rich. Things that probably we would want too, a lot of possessions and, and pets and family and property. But the devil shows up and says to God, you know, dude, Job only likes you because life is good for him and because your blessing is upon him. Like, what if you took away his wealth and blessings? I bet he would curse you. I bet he would abandon you. And God says, you know what? Do your worst, but look and see how my servant Job will respond. So in a day, the devil wipes out everything that Job has. He destroys his property, ruins his possessions, kills his servants, and even has his children killed. All of that in a day. Can you imagine if you lost everything in a day? If you lost your house, your laptop, your phone, your car, your friends, your family? Imagine you lost everything in one day. Well, this is what happened to Job. And so um, this picture of Job, you see him there just in the middle, kind of rotting because he's lost everything. And I won't go into details uh, with everything. We don't have the time, but those are his three friends who sit with him. And you see his wife actually on the left. She actually tells Job to curse God and die because of how God has seemingly betrayed him. But Job in chapter one says this, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So this is the faith of Job. Now, I'm not saying Job is perfect. If you read the entire book of Job, you'll actually see Job, he complains sometimes. He demands answers from God and God rebukes him swiftly. But here's the thing. Even though Job complained, he never abandoned his faith. His faith might have flickered like a candle that's about to go out, but his faith never uh, went out like a candle. It, he never abandoned God. And Job cling, he clung to his faith in the Lord. Why? Because in James 5.11, he says that, um, James says that you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. What we see is the word purpose in the Greek, it means telos, and that can mean purpose or end goal. So, for example, the telos of a guitar is to play music. The telos of a chair is to sit in it. And so the telos of God's will is to grow your character, to grow the character of Job, to make him more and more like God. And to show, to show, to, for God to show his compassion and mercy to Job. That is the telos or the end purpose of God's will. If you don't know the end of, Job, of Job's story, he does not abandon his faith in God. And God restores his fortune. He gave Job twice as much as what he had before. So now, at the end of Job's, or at the end of this trial, now Job has 14,000 sheep instead of 7,000. Now he has 6,000 camels instead of 3,000. Now he has 1,000 oxen instead of 5,000. Now he has 1,000 donkeys instead of 500. And again, he has 10 children again. Um, and he lives another 140 years, and he sees his children's children. And so Job dies a man who is full of life. Now, I'm not saying that life will always turn out good. This is not prosperity gospel. I'm not saying that you trust God, you'll make money. Uh, I'm not saying any of that. But I, I am saying that we have to cling to God in the face of trial. 
just like how a fire purifies a diamond, making it perfect. Sometimes the difficult things in your life, it's like that fire. It's trying to perfect and refine your character to make you more and more like Jesus. Sometimes you're suffering in your pain. God is using it to make you stronger and more like him. So therefore, do not grumble. Jesus, the judge, is at the door. This is the example of Job. So my application for the second command is just real simple. Just know that God judges Christians too. Not in the matter of salvation of heaven and hell. I said it earlier. You are guaranteed a thousand percent. You're in heaven. You're with Jesus. But God will assess. God will evaluate the life you lived. And he will reward us accordingly. So in this verse specifically, don't grumble. Don't bicker with one another. Don't fight with fellow believers. Because best believe that every toxic word you ever say, every angry thought you have in your mind, every uh, cuss word you spew out at a fellow brother or sister in Christ, this will be reported. God will not forget. And this will come up again on the day of his return. So live like your actions and your thoughts are being recorded because in reality, they are. God does not forget. You and I will give an account of our life. I have to give, I'm held to a higher standard as a pastor. I'm scared of that. Teachers are held to a higher standard. And so I, even more so, have to watch the way I live. So guys, let's not grumble with one another, whether you're fighting with your siblings bickering with parents, drama with friends from school, friends from church, maybe conflict with teachers, maybe random strangers online or people on social media. As children of God, we await the Lord's return. We do not grumble against one another because we know Jesus will judge. This is a, the recap of what we went through today. The how should Christians endure suffering? Number one, we saw that we must be patient until Christ returns. He will rescue the faithful and he'll judge the unrepentant. And then an example of that was a patient farmer. The second thing Christians should do during suffering, we should not grumble against one another. Why? Because God, Christ will judge us and he'll assess the life of believers. An example of that was the faithful prophet. My big idea today is that the return of Jesus instills patience and peace for the suffering Christian. This is the big idea, or to summarize everything today. You know, in the beginning, I talked about Lord of the Rings and the return of the king. You know, but all these fiction stories, they point to a greater reality of a real king who created the world that you and I live in, this natural universe. A perfect king who must execute justice and one day punish humanity for its sin and its rebellion. If you want justice in this life, if you want justice from God, what is fair is that all of humanity is condemned to an existence apart from God. And this is what we call hell. That's the bad news. But out of the good purpose of this good king who has a compassionate and merciful will, this king enters time and space 2,000 years ago as a man, this king named Jesus Christ, 
he's on a rescue mission for you and me. He would die on the cross, thereby taking the punishment of your sin and my sin so that you and I can be forgiven, that we are able to walk away free, that despite what we deserve, which is hell, the wrath of God, this King, King Jesus, dies in our place. He rises again three days later, never to die again, conquering the enemy of death, so that whosoever believes in Jesus will have eternal life starting today. Isn't this a gospel message? Isn't this why you and I gather at church each day? Because we believe in a king. We believe that a king offers lasting, everlasting life for those who trust and believe and submit to him. But for those of us who reject him, who worship and chase our false gods of success and pleasure and living our own lives, one day this life will end and we will meet destruction, everlasting destruction and judgment. So let me ask you guys as I close, when it's all said and done, when your life is over, which could be today, who is your king? Who do you pledge allegiance to? Who is the Lord of your life? This is the most important question in the universe. It defines your eternal destiny. Who is Lord of your life? Let me pray for us. God, we come before you and we know that there is hope that you, you are on the move. Jesus, you are on the move. You are almost here. We don't know when, we don't know where, but Lord, we know we are living in the last days and we know that a lot of us here, we're, we're broken, we're suffering, we're hurt. God, you know the pain that each, of our, each one of us go through. And God, remind us, open our hearts to the hope that you are returning soon, that one day we'll stand before you and we will be made clean because of the blood of your son and you will wipe away every tear and conquer death for the final time. Lord, please bless our small group discussions. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, um, this is the end of the sermon. So you guys are now dismissed to small groups, not in pre-assigned. Go to your own small groups. We'll test that next week. And yeah, have a great discussion, guys. Uh, okay, I'm 